Brought to you by Sullis Nua in Washington, D.C. Hello there, and welcome to episode six of We Are The Makers. My name is Donald Deneen, and once again, I'm your host for this journey all the way to the art of the matter with the makers as our guide. Now, if you've been following the series thus far, you'll know that we've been lucky enough to have had extended encounters with some of our most brilliant creative minds working on this island across a range of media and in a variety of art forms. The scope of our investigations was never meant to be exhaustive, but along the way we have gained very valuable insights into the art of making photographs, films, dances, songs, paintings, rhymes, sculptures and tapestries, along with extracurricular and even more transient things like splashes, wishes and waves. Needless to say, it's been a real trip to venture out on a learning curve in such stellar company, scaling the heights of some of their creative achievements while having my own core beliefs in the value of the work they do refreshed and renewed at every turn. Now, if you've got to this point in the series because you're also an avid believer in the transformative power of art, then you'll most likely agree with the notion that life is something that happens in between these critical moments of illumination. And were it not for our exposure to their incandescent power, then this planet would be a very dull place indeed, not to mention the fact that our journeys upon it would be far less vivid affairs. In this series, I get to go back and colour in some of those key experiences which have been hugely formative in terms of sparking my own creative thinking. The impetus to seek out and engage with the makers we have featured here is traceable in every instance to moments of the purest inspiration that have resulted from exposure to their work and oftentimes to directional shifts in our own journey that have happened from tremors that occurred in the wake of their acts of the imagination. We have found it instructive to work backwards from those lightbulb moments and to trace the lineage of these uniquely brilliant and highly individual paths to the waterfall which have been carved out in the name of creativity. We believe in the usefulness of mapping the trajectory of these creative arcs and in tailoring the geography of these conversations with the creators to provide maximum insight into the how and why. So back when this series was still just a germinating idea, there was a meeting somewhere in the cloud where a wish list of the makers whose work had been most impactful to us was drawn up. Top of all our lists was our esteemed guest today. Throughout the series, we've encountered makers who use different media in their practice, but here is an artist who is, in effect, her own form. She's a generational actor, but the word acting is far too narrow and constricting to describe what she does. Alwyn Fuere has presided over Irish theatre and film for almost half a century to the extent that she occupies her own space in the Pantheon. And it's a very unique and precious space indeed. There has never been, nor ever will be, another like her. Working internationally in French and in English, her extensive practice navigates not just theatre and film, but the visual arts, music, dance and literature, including collaborations with playwrights such as Stephen Burkhoff, Marina Carr, Enda Walsh and Lauren Godet, 
as well as visual artists like James Coleman and Jesse Jones, the composer Roger Doyle, and the choreographer and featured artist on our last We Are The Makers episode, Michael Keegan Dolan. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. As well as being a brilliant solo performer, Alwyn Fuere is also the ultimate collaborator. So intertwining connections in the rich tapestry of her exceptional career, there are many. Not just in terms of her range of skills and her extraordinary multidisciplinary approach as an artist, but as someone who comfortably straddles the line between mainstream theatre and experimental art, she's a singular force and a total game-changing, shape-shifting, one-of-a-kind. The list of her achievements are too extensive to list here right now, but suffice to say that her versatility, combined with a staunch commitment to her art and a seemingly boundless source of energy to invest in it, has seen her amass an unparalleled body of work. For the sake of the story today, we're going to concentrate on the making and just a handful of those pieces. In terms of significance as a theatre maker, River Run, her interpretation of the voice of the river in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, was a high-watermark achievement, and one of those once-in-a-lifetime shows that set both the tectonic plates and the twilight reeling. Calling all downs. Calling all dawns to Dane. We'll be revisiting that one in particular in some detail and depth. As we will discover over the next 90 minutes, all her theatrical ventures are underpinned by an innate belief in theatre's ultimate role and function as a vehicle for fundamental transformation of consciousness, or, as she puts it, an act of disturbance against the prescribed reality we live in. In devising this series, one of our aspirations was to document. And for this final episode, that intention is even more pronounced for the simple reason that those transformative moments that happen on a stage are ultimately fleeting and ephemeral. And although the earth may move temporarily, the moment will also have passed before you know it. In writing these lines today, I am honoring those same transient moments of pure transcendence. More than any other actor I've been lucky enough to witness live on a stage, Alwyn has embodied that intangible power that is so hard to break down or explain. The writer James Toohey put it so well when he said, It is her deep understanding of performance and her profound and personal connection with the material that allows for a transfixing and oftentimes haunting spectator experience. Haunted and transfixed is generally the end point of an encounter with Alwyn on stage and in character. The starting point for our conversation in the real world, however, began with a discussion on the formative influence of her early years growing up to Breton parents in the emotional landscape of Connemara. She takes up the story. Yeah, I was born in Ockersbeg. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not actually in Ockersbeg, in Galway, but my family had already moved into the house that my dad built in Ockersbeg. Up till then, they were living in a little cottage next nearby. And so I was born into that house, Ockersbeg, which is a peninsula on the, it's about two miles west of Cladaduff, Omi Island. Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. 
But Connemara and, and that part of Connemara, especially at that time, it was really remote and very, very beautiful. And it was, a, you know, it was a perfect, perfect kind of childhood uh-huh. in terms of your relationship with nature and mm-hmm. your relationship with place. Mm-hmm. I always feel that the, the place was my formation, really. Mm. It formed me a lot more than all the other things that people talk about, you know, that mm. form humans. <laughs> yeah. I really feel that there was something about that place. And and uh, it still exerts quite a power on me, but not just on me. Like, it has a magnetic pull. Yeah. You know, you know, Kerry is very similar. There are certain parts of this island which have mm. something. Mm. And uh, it, it's intangible, but... You can feel it. Yeah, like intangible it may be, but I, I have to ask you a bit more though. But it's yeah. it's like, is it that freedom that you had or, or you know, to be in nature and for it to be like the ultimate space to be in and, and, and kind of being able to I, I find some kind of harmony with that naturally without it being forced. It's not a holiday. It's not a day totally. out. It's, it's every yeah. moment. Yeah. I mean, you're, I, I, I definitely think the most, you know, the most important relationship I had was with the environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to the extent of, if you like, seeing God and everything or feeling God and everything. Yeah, that, you I, know? that's perfect. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Without ever having been, yeah. with, with, you know, when, when I remember when we did the catechism and there was that question, uh, where is God? God is everywhere. I, I, you know, like I already knew that. <laughs> 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 Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, so we'll say in the immediate environment of the house or, or, or your home, um, are we talking all of the elements there? With, with yeah, the ocean, very powerful, ocean, and but also the river. horizon. Yeah, right. The horizon is an incredibly powerful thing out there because you kind of know. I mean, from when I was tiny, people used to say, "Oh." That direction's Boston. That's that's probably Nova Scotia. I yeah. often say next stop Nova Scotia. Mm. You know, if you if I look out on the the empty part of the horizon, it kind of goes that way north uh, northwest, and I go like uh, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. You know, mm. all those things. Um, so the horizon is very powerful, uh, and you you know your your imagination goes past it, mm. um, and also just the um, the power of the wind and the and the ocean and um, the the animals and um, the rocks, mm. um, all of those things have you know they 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 are living things mm-hmm. and um, they exist kind of independent you know completely independently from the human being you know so. Mm-hmm. I think it also gives you great perspective on what a human is, mm-hmm. you know, a little speck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> These forces are much bigger. Yeah. Um, Those elemental forces. Yeah. yeah they, they really are much yeah, bigger. And they're eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I think, I just think, you know, it gave me, it gave me a, a, a really, a really strong sense of, of my body within this vastness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and the, uh, you know, the unimportance of the human being as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and a kind of grounding that you just maybe can't get if you're, if you're on, you know, the concrete all the time. Maybe. maybe yeah. yeah. I mean, probably. I'm sure you can, but, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. But, um, but, but yeah, I, it was like, I was pretty, I, I, I could still consider myself to be socially incredibly awkward, but 
I, I, you know, I had no idea really. I mean, I was far more involved with these relationships with these forces than I was with mm -hmm. relationships with humans. <laughs> so I still don't quite know how to relate to humans. <laughs> I, I hear you. It's probably not too early in proceedings or too much of a stretch to relate some of the most powerful performances I've seen Alwyn conjure on stage to her oneness with those elemental forces which surrounded her in early childhood and that all-important brush with the eternal in the most ethereal and ancient of landscapes. An early indicator of where her destiny might lie beyond life in what Tim Robinson called those huge luminous spaces came in the form of a very different but equally brilliant type of luminosity via Super 8 films of the genius entertainer Charlie Chaplin, which her brother brought home to Connemara for Christmas. That was just something they started doing. Yeah, bring, we had a little Super 8 projector. Yeah. And then, so they used to bring them down at, and it was just like, it was the best. Yeah. And I mean, to this day, you know, Chaplin for me is just yeah. one of my... I can't even say inspiration because I can't, uh, you know, I, I can't do what he does. Yeah. But um, in terms of just that, that, that the, 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 the kind of communication that he achieves is just like so sublime. And, yeah. and, um, and, you know, some people accuse uh, Chaplin being kind of romantic. Yes, he is, but that's not the kind of romanticism that bothers me at all, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, I mean, when I read that or saw that, I was mm. that that's something that surely that had a big impact in oh, terms definitely. of of forming some kind of sense of of, of what to do. Yeah. Was there other things that were kind of happening? So, so the assimilation process mm -hmm. was that tough, or or how was that? Um, I guess it was tough enough. It's very hard to separate those things from just normal. Yeah. You know, when you grow up, you feel, you know, everybody, I think at some stage in their development feels like a total outsider. Um, um, so I think the assimilation process was quite difficult in the sense that I like um, when I started working as a performer, in fact, and that was in Dublin, I was with the most brilliant pure Dublin kind of people, you know, with that incredible wit that you can't, yeah. you know, like that you can't keep up with. Yeah. Uh, I used to feel really out of it. But then I remember Jim Sheridan said it was like Snow White and Steven Dwarfs. <laughs> but uh, but I've, I did feel really kind of out of it. But at the same time, it was a brilliant kind of training and a brilliant kind of challenge for me. Yeah. Um, so um, so I would say, yeah, the simulation process wasn't was not easy. But it also, that difficulty is what led me to be yeah. a performer, I think. Mm. The urge to communicate with the world, coupled with the need to overcome those assimilation difficulties, was clearly present from a young age. But those impulses had yet to find a form. And the great communicator to be had yet to find her voice. Furthermore, the shining path ahead had also yet to reveal itself. You, you know, you are always asked what, what do you want to be when you grow up, yeah. you know, I think kids are, are still asked that all yeah. the time. Um, and I was, and I, I didn't really know, but, um, I went through different phases of, of thinking what it might be. I was always very interested in medicine. Yeah. I read always. that. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, I remember reading a novel about a brain surgeon and thinking, God, that would be really interesting, you know, brain surgery. Yeah. Um, uh, 
I think that was one of the reasons that I stayed in school was I thought if I want to study medicine, I would need to stay and do all the exams and everything. It was it was at that time considered one of the most difficult professions to go into. Yeah. You had to have seven seven A's or yeah. whatever the equivalent is yeah. now. Um, and and I was always interested in the arts as well. Um, I wasn't particularly gifted in drawing and painting, which was the only form of yeah, visual but art. You, d- you did do art, did but you? I did. Yeah, I did do it, and I did do it later. Um, and um, and I did do a few little plays and things in school. And there was one play I did, two actually, that I did, um, where I definitely felt something doing, you know, when I was yeah. doing that. Kind of felt very, I felt like I'd created a space for myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was it uh, was that one of the ones that uh, where was it the maths teacher had so, so suddenly changed her opinion or yeah, yeah, yes, that's or her right. demeanor? <laughs> I can't remember which play it was that I did, but and I was given a sleep in, and the next morning I came into maths class and the and the maths teacher who I was terrified of, who yeah. was actually a brilliant teacher and 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 probably a lovely woman, but we were all scared, really scared, yeah. kind of frightening. Step down, I always remember her stepping down off the rostrum and extending her hand to me and saying, congratulations. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, you know, like I couldn't believe it. <laughs> the first of many ovations. But it was to be a while again before Alban would get another taste of such acclaim. And the period directly after school took a turn in a very different direction namely a period studying sculpture with the Breton artist Jan Goulet. Somewhat inadvertently, this led to the circumstances of her first brush with the actual theatre, by a time spent sketching finds on site at Wood Quay. That's, it's always very hard for me to identify when that was. I, really? I often say that if I had gone to a big college of art at the time, I would have been exposed to performance art and I might have gone in that yeah, direction. Yeah. But I knew nothing. I didn't even know it existed as a form. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though you were probably dabbling a little bit at that point. Yeah, or, or, yeah, but, you know, but I didn't know yeah. like it existed. Um, uh, so after, you know, two or three, a couple of years working with Jan and then and then my, my parents sort of said, look, why don't you just do the teacher training in the College of Art, which I really wasn't interested in, but it was kind of like, you know, parents, they kind of want you to have something and then you can do yeah. what you want. You yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, I'll do. And then I didn't stick with that. I did, you know, half. Did you start year. it? You, you did yeah, start it. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't stick with it. And it was around that time that it was kind of, um, I just sort of took some time out and then I went, then, then I, I started seeing some, I, I don't know if it's quite the same time, but anyway, I started seeing some theater. In Dublin. And getting in Dublin and getting very interested in what I was seeing. Yeah. And um and then I decided, okay, I was going to, you know, be independent, be more independent, and I got a job on the Wood Key site. Oh yes. Drawing finds. Yes. And that was an extraordinary job to have, actually. Yes. I was very lucky to be on it. And so that gave me a bit of income. I bought a bike and um and I started then kind of drifting towards like these theater, uh, theater classes. Uh-huh. Um, I do remember, and, and like I'd forgotten this, but I do remember saying to somebody, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to Dublin and um, I'm going to work on this, on the 
So I, and then at weekends I'm going to look look at at the, you know theater classes, uh-huh. acting acting classes. Oh, I, yeah. Actually, I didn't realize that I had thought about acting, but uh-huh. I, I you had said I those words. About, <laughs> yeah, I said that word. Yeah. Uh, so I am. Um, and we're talking early seventies now, right? Yeah, you're yeah. talking about like seventy four, yeah, seventy five, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I was on the Wood Woodkey site for about nine months or a year. And in that time, I started going to these uh, weekend sessions. Um, first of all, I went to the gate. Chris Casson was giving these classes on performance or, you know, monologues or elocution even. I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, I yeah. went up there. Such a lovely man he was. Uh, but it was very like classical, you know. Yeah. And then um, somebody on who was on that course told me about the the, the focus and I had also seen some shows, the focus, and thought that the work, the work was really amazing. Mm-hmm. So I knocked on the door on a weekend, weekend sessions I knew they were doing. I always remember the knock on that door. Yeah. Because I went up to the door and I, and I went, I went, I know, oh, bother. Yeah. And then I left. <laughs> pre-knock. Yeah, pre-knock. <laughs> and then I like, was literally about like eight steps away and I turned around and said, ah, oh, sure, might as well. Yeah. And knocked on the door and Deirdre O'Connor opened, opened the door. Deirdre O'Connell, Connell opened the door. Um, and uh, I just said, you know, I know you're doing these studio sessions at the weekends and I'd love to just come in and watch. And she said... Um, you know, we had a little meeting and essentially said, well, you know, you, you, you can't watch, you have to take part. So that's mm. how it all started. Mm. So it was more than just the regular door there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was like the turning point in my life, really, yeah. you know. So you don't actually have to knock twice. Just make two attempts and quell all urges to walk away before that crucial connection is made. Not just for herself, but for all of us too. It's a good thing that Alwyn persevered and did that crucial 360 turn on the stoop because it wasn't just any door, but the portal to another world she would go on to thrive in and indeed very soon conquer. Then what happened was that the um, Wood Key site closed. Oh, right. Yeah. And around the same time, the focus asked me to take over a role for somebody else, which was going on tour to Cork. So I took over this role. So it was a two-hander between Deirdre O'Connell and myself. Yeah. I can't remember the name of that play either. Yeah. We d- I did that. And then I was asked to play Vera in A Month in the Country, Turgenev play. Gabriel Byrne playing the, the tutor. Oh. And so I did that. So that you're talking like a spread of nearly six months now. Mm-hmm. And then Jim Sheridan asked me to come down to the project and kind of join this very ad hoc company that he had formed um, to do the Risen People. And it went on from there then. So so really what happened was that he, he must have seen one of the... Yeah, he went to, he ones, saw right? the um, Month in the Country. Okay, right. Mm. And so like... You know, we, we hear about it, read about it. I know personal experience about it, but that period in the project mm. sounds like now already in the conversation, it feels like you've had good timing, you know, Very good even timing. from the point of view of in general, what the world was thinking in yeah. the late sixties, early seventies to focus to would key. Mm. And now you're in the project and, and yeah. there's, there's 
shape-shifting and game-changing happening all the time. Yeah, that's, I was so fortunate. Mm. I really, really consider myself so fortunate to have had that. It wasn't my timing, but whatever yeah. timing happened um, for that. Uh, and, and so I was two years in the project, mm-hmm. um, going from show to show pretty much, doing some amazing work, being introduced to, to, to plays that I, uh, you know, I'd never would have come across um, and, and working with amazing people. Plus the project at that time, as you know, was a, there was so much happening. Mm-hmm. The foyer was the gallery, the mm-hmm. visual art gallery. So it wasn't just theater. There was, yeah, it was know. lots of things going on. There was the cinema as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yes. What is now the gallery in the new project uh-huh. was the cinema. So there was a cinema, a theater, mm-hmm. a gallery. The theater also would have music gigs. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, the Virgin Prunes, all of those mm-hmm. people were playing in the project weekends. I've seen things. photographs of like there being more people than, yeah, yeah lots of people in that place and, and a real gathering. It was packed. You could not point. get people like, you know, um, they had to get bouncers to pull down the shutters because yeah. <laughs> you couldn't like, yeah. they would, they were not, ba- not real bouncers, but you know, yeah. somebody like you and me yeah. had to be on the door yeah. To, yeah. to just like, cause it would get too full on the gig nights and all that kind of stuff. And, um, there was, it was just packed. Uh, and every show was packed to the rafters. And, and you were saying about, you know, the fact that you didn't, a few years previously, you didn't know what, you didn't know performance art was a thing or mm. existed. Um, so now you're in a place that that you're seeing it, or or at least you're seeing all yeah. different types of, yeah. of of and there's this energy explosion. Yeah. So it obviously has a profound and a kind of defining impact there. Definitely. I mean, I I felt like I was, you know, I felt like even though I felt quite, you know, you know, the whole assimilation process was still going on because I was surrounded yeah. by these brilliant Dublin people and yeah. That I like the wit and the the repartee is so like brilliant, and you just yeah. feel so stupid around it, you know. But it, I was just so lucky well, to that's be part the whole of point. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I used to. I mean, I had people yeah. go, "He's got a problem with me," and then like thirty five yeah. years later, know that he loves me. Yeah, But yeah, so but to be in there, I mean, it must have been. Uh, you're still so young, but you're, you know, yeah. you're so absorbent and in, yeah and, yeah, and still assimilating and growing and changing. And I was around 22 then. Yeah. Wow. And, um, and, 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 and that was my first exposure to performance art. I always remember walking in there, you know, to go to work, to, to, to do the show. And Nigel Rolf would be yeah. rolling around on the ground where he'd still been three days later, you know, doing his thing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like amazing. Like mm-hmm. he was extraordinary, mm-hmm. and and just being exposed to that, you know, mm-hmm. going, oh, Nigel's still at it, you know. Whatever, you <laughs> there know? he is. Here's someone. Because because he and people would be buying their tickets, and he'd be there yeah. doing his, you know, amazing. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to ask about in terms of your practice, Alwyn, is that, like, okay, so we're talking about mid seventies. The work you're doing in 2022 is extraordinary, mm. but was was there things that happened in there? Um, in terms of the really difficult parts of, of being a performer, the discipline that's involved in, in a production, the kind of stuff you have to deal with in terms of managing your energy on a, if you're in a production. Um, you know, my initial exposure to the world of, of acting and, and becoming friends with actors, uh, great young actors back in the day, um, 
as well as being in awe of their skill and talent, what I was genuinely uh, in awe of was their ability to kind of manage that, you know, on a nightly basis where you have to go to the place, summon it and then put it away or else kind of deal with it. Or mm. So long way of asking the question, like, how soon were you able to kind of like navigate that in a way that wasn't totally detrimental or damaging or, 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 or you know, it's a big question, but mm. were there things that happened in that period that still inform your practice now in a good way? Yeah, oh, oh, that that's definitely something, you know, that uh, t- takes a while to understand the kind of preparation you need and, um, you know, that sustaining that sort of focus and energy uh, I often think that the, the preparation for live performance is actually probably the most important part of it. Yeah. If you work out how to prepare, you're, you'll you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But sometimes it's difficult to know how to prepare. And that took me a while to, I mean, I, I knew very quickly that the body was the site of, of the work, you yeah. know, and, and the body had to be in a particular state of prep, a state of readiness uh, and openness uh, and the kind of stresses that come with it all, you know, even in rehearsals, the sort of stresses of, you know, lack of confidence or self, self-criticism or, or whatever else you're dealing with, you know. Um, and and so I, I naturally gravitated towards physical body kind of disciplines. And, um, and by chance, again, <laughs> my good timing, well, I did do some, try to do some dance training. It was Martha Graham kind of technique. Yeah, right. And that was a good introduction, but I felt quite hard. Um, I, you and, know, and did that happen because of finding yourself on stage and, and 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 sort of wanting to do things that you couldn't do? Or was it something that you kind of naturally, an think, evolution of? I think that desire, the Martha Graham going towards dance was much more about that I felt that that was my form. Right. I always felt dance was my form. And I remember somebody asking me, you know, do you really want to be an actor? And I said, well, I'd rather be a dancer, uh-huh. but, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I can move, I'm a good mover, you know, and I, I've, I've got, you know, I'm set, my body is centered and all that kind of stuff, but traditional dance training, and I'm not talking traditional, I mean, I'm all kinds of dance training. Maybe uh-huh. I never found the right kind of training, mm-hmm. but, um, I, if you, if you ask me to do steps. I cannot do steps. Like I can't do that mm. kind of choreography, but yet I can move. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's you a very, find, yeah. it's a strange in-betweeny place. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I was very pulled towards dance, towards that as a form. Um, but yet I was in theater. So I was always seeking the, 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 the body stuff. And then, so after the Martha Graham, which I just touched on for a while and learned quite a bit of stuff from that, but found it hard. Um, there was a, a Tai Chi master who came to Ireland and was giving lessons. So I joined those classes and that was really significant for me. Yeah, I really felt that particular form and the way I was taught it was really good. Uh-huh. It was very precise. Yeah. It was not, not airy-fairy at all. And I was actually wanting more of the philosophy of it. No, they went purely into the physical yeah. discipline of it. Um, very specific. And that gave me, I learned a huge amount physically from that Yeah. about basically connecting with the earth, having your feet on the ground, being balanced, being present. Yeah. You know? And so that would still inform your, your preparation. That hugely informed my, yeah. my, my work. 
Yeah. Uh, and then I was also very interested in mime. I did some mime mime training, but all these things started to come together. And I, and I, of course, I really want to, even though I was working all the time, I really wanted to, I'd, I'd love to go to drama school, blah, blah, you know, because I can't do any of this stuff. And then I'd yeah. learn, you know, yeah. uh, and, but that would have been a big thing to do because I'd have had to leave the country first of all. I knew I was in an environment where I was going to be learning a lot, even yeah. if it was the hard way. Yeah. And I was in this particular community. This I I was in a tribe that yeah. was looking after me. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can see. I mean, yeah. as you say, tell me about your role. I'm thinking about their, how they saw you, you know, and like, <laughs> what a gift. Yeah. Finding her tribe and immersing herself in a community of highly compatible creative thinkers was by no means an end in itself for Alwyn. Her restless pursuit of excellence and the need to constantly sharpen her tools is something that continues unabated to this day. But a very early example of her taking her game up was her exposure to voice exploration techniques from the Roy Hart School. For an actor who was already aware of an internal gravitational pull towards silence and nonverbal work, the theatre of being as opposed to talking, this was a significant breakthrough. The, I suppose, making peace with the words thing yeah. <laughs> uh, came very much just through the voice, I guess. Um, underst- you know, like I... I when I'm, for instance, now when I prepare for a live performance, which is going to be vocally very demanding, I work my body, and then the voice works. Okay. You know. Yeah. I don't do the. I don't do body and voice. Yeah. The body prepares the voice, yeah. and sometimes that's hard to explain to people. But yeah. a good a good voice coach knows that. Yeah. You know? Sure. Um, and they will always, you know, work the body. But you do you do get whole. You know, you do get a whole kind of um, schools of thought about vocal training, which is like seem to just work from there up, you know, yeah. or from there up. Yeah. But, but, you know, everything about your body is important when you're using your voice. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so that, and then I was very fortunate again, like I would gravitate because I couldn't go to drama school or anything like that. I gravitated towards all these different master classes that would happen by. At that time, there was also an actor center, which was on the keys and which had all these different things that would be happening, oh. which you could go to. It was really good. And um, by way and of, of like training you train. or yeah. master classes okay. for three days or something. Sure, right. And that's how in the early 80s, I got introduced to um, a, a, somebody from the Roy Hart Theatre. Mm hmm. And that's fascinating. Like they all teach differently, but the particular guy who taught me, Ivan Midere, just opened up a whole world to me. It's a voice exploration, which was started by um, by one particular practitioner. I think he was in Germany or was he in England? Who got fascinated by the sounds that people made, that men made in the trenches when they were dying that it was these kind of almost inhuman sounds and how it kind of came from, they would never make those sounds normally. Mm, That's the story behind the system. And then he started getting really interested in the voice as a form of therapy. 
And then that evolved by a guy called Roy Hart uh, into the, you know, all the dimensions of the voice, which could be applied to performance. And it's a very non, it's a very, it's not a very structured system of exploration. As I said, they all explore it differently and you can get a teacher that doesn't suit you at all. But this particular teacher was brilliant for me and opened up an entire world where, where, you know, the, the, I would actually say opened portals yeah. of consciousness yeah. of where you could go in the voice. Yeah. Really, uh, really powerful thing. And, you know, I, and, and then of course you can recognize it in certain like ancient, ancient folk traditions, you know, the, that, that, that polyphonic singing yeah. and everything has that force behind it, you yeah. know, where everything is so open. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when I hear that, I kind of mm. hark back to all that. So, that was really a big thing for me where I realized, well, I know I may be speaking words, but actually it's the voice yeah, that is sounds, expressing yes. first, you know. I love this idea of the sound of the voice being as expressive as the words themselves. And once again, if I can backdate this information just gleaned, it fits with those familiar feelings of being transfixed, haunted and hypnotized by Alwyn's lines in various productions down through the years. Of course, there's science behind it. There is no scientific explanation, however, as to how two creative minds can immediately click and make sparks. But one such significant encounter happened around this time. Meeting composer and electronic pioneer Roger Doyle was a very fortuitous one that happened within the walls of the project and quickly led to the establishment of the operating theatre which became a vehicle for Alwyn's more experimental work. She takes up the story. When I was still in the project, somebody uh, approached me saying that Roger was looking for a, a dancer who was not a, a trained dancer yep. to perform while one of his works were playing Talia. So I'd never met him before. So we met and we went into what was then the cinema Oh, of the, yeah, in the project. Just to, just yeah. to have a meeting and yeah. to do a bit of improv. And um, he put on the, the track and I had this immediate feeling of recognition. I said, oh, I know this, you know, like, you know mm. how wor some, some mm. works of art just do that. And you oh, go, yeah. oh, it's actually talking about my planet. Yeah, you know? <laughs> a preordained thing yeah. inside, yeah. And uh, mm. I had this immediate sense of recognition. I started improvising and he... Um, you know, there was this kind of meeting of just imaginations. Mm -hmm. And so I did that piece for him and then didn't really see him for a while. And then um, when we were doing the fall of the house of Usher at a certain point, Peter Sheridan said, oh yeah, we need, we need to get a, a musician. And Roger was brought in and with a piano, which he played yeah. every which way yeah like the strings or the pedals or yeah. whatever he was playing yeah. and that's so we got to know each other more on that and then um and then at some stage uh what else yeah it just kind of went on from there because you know once you start working with people you mm. stay in touch and you be yeah. doing other things together and at some stage um roger had i think roger had always been interested in music theater and he wanted to create a, a kind of a, a setup where you could produce music theater productions, but also be a band. And yeah. that's how operating theater started. Yeah. So the first ever thing we did was um, 
I think I wrote a couple of songs and then we, and we were a very ad hoc group of people in the operating theater. Yeah. But we never really took off as a band other than in Roger's studio. Like mm-hmm. he's produced loads of, mm-hmm. loads of, of the stuff that we would have done or he's put together stuff because yeah. he's also, he does everything in the studio. So we didn't really do any much performances as a band, but the, the performance side of the music theater really took off in a very non-music theater kind of way. Like the first big show we did together was, um, was a, a, based on a, on a script by Aidan Matthews. It was called The Diamond Body. And that uh, premiered in 1984 and was hugely successful. But it, it had... What does it The was, Diamond Body refer to something? I, I think Diamond I Body, it. it's, ba- it's, a, it's about uh, a, a, a transgender person. Okay, right. Um, a man who is becoming hermaphroditic. Okay. Not a woman, but yeah. hermaphroditic. And this is not- it's about a man who is transforming himself to be both genders yeah. or both sexes or both physical. You know, the hermaphrodite was a kind of considered a kind of holy thing in, mm-hmm. in ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the uni- unity of yeah. these polarities. Best of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Diamond Body, that title, which was Roger's title actually, comes from the, it comes from an alchemical term okay about that's what i thought the fusion right. of mm, right the fusion of two th- elements yeah, into yeah. one yeah the thing in the, in the center yeah. um and uh so i was playing a man basically mm-hmm. but telling this story about his lover who was hermaphroditic yeah who was murdered so it was a about scapegoatism as well about okay. being scapegoated for being other yeah right that's wow. what the, yeah we need more of that yeah As well as being significant in terms of the prescient nature of the material and the fact that it represented her and Roger Doyle's first big project together, The Diamond Body was also a turning point in that it established her reputation for playing androgynous roles. It was a turning point in other ways too. The stars truly aligned for this momentous production. Fresh out of college, working among the technical crew for The Diamond Body's rapturously received stint at the Avignon Theatre Festival, was author and future Booker Prize winner Anne Enright. She writes, Alwyn Fuere herself is a bit of an icon for her gift of making an audience think that everything has, very slowly, started to float a few inches above the floor. The almost supernatural power of her stage presence meant that from this mid-80s point onwards, Alwyn was in a position of being able to pick and choose roles on the most eminent theatrical stages, while at the same time, maintaining that commitment to experimental work, which began to find its true expression as part of operating theatre, and subsequently her own emergency room holding cell for projects in need of immediate attention. Yeah, it never gets really fixed. I mean, you know, I would get cast in all sorts. I would would do virtually everything because I felt this was my way of learning you know um i wouldn't do something i didn't want to do but overall i would i would just take on you know and and i was very lucky with the sort of things i was offered um and i you know i i kind of i I was always being cast in the kind of classic ingenue roles and I, i was not not that interested in that particularly in the way that one was expected to interpret them yeah <laughs> um 
but it just evolved. So I've always had these two streams going, you know, which I call the mainstream being when the work that comes in from completely other places, yes. which would be more, you know, the, 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 the productions, you know, with various theatres or big theatres yeah. and this other alternative stream, which would be the kind of work I would do with Roger or um, now my own, as I call it, so my virtual company called The Emergency Room, which yeah. is basically just to allow myself to develop ideas which maybe might see the light yeah. of day. Absolutely um, love the projects yeah. in need of um, immediate, immediate attention. Immediate attention, yeah. Wow. An awful lot of them are dying. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but it's still the idea somehow. Yeah. It's almost like you need a space to put those things. I, yeah. Wonderful. But, um, yeah. so, but so, so just on the mainstream, right? So if you don't, if you don't mind, there's, mm. we'll say um, probably where I, I saw your um, one of the first times, um, early 90s in the gate, Salome, with... with um, was that something, a moment for you in terms yeah. of that production? I yeah. mean, yeah. it was extraordinary. Yeah, no, that was a really important show for me um, because as, as I've described these two streams, yeah. um, this is, it came together in intersection, that. Intersection, like, yeah. yeah. yeah was Roger was involved too, right? And Roger being yeah. involved and, and it being so physically rigorous, you know, um, this, 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 this other reality that you're creating through, through this kind of like, this almost slow motion movement. And also I was a massive fan of Stephen Burkhoff's work. Right. Above any other pr practitioner in, in England, mm -hmm. I went over at one point to, to have a look at everything that was happening in London. And I had no interest in any of it apart from him. I thought he was doing some amazing work. Yeah. And of course he's coming much more from the European tradition as well, you know, yeah. from his training. Although all he's ever wanted, as far as I can make out, was to be a great classical Shakespearean actor. But, okay, right. you know, he just has this other thing going yeah. on, which is so fascinating and an amazing writer as well. Mm -hmm. um, so... It was just, I was so thrilled to be asked to do that. And, um, and it was a big moment for me in, the, in that intersection point. In the forever rising upward arc of Alwyn's career, the big moments keep on coming, but Salome with Stephen Burkhoff was clearly a benchmark. Having successfully navigated her role as part of a company directed by such a theatrical titan, as well as lots of other such scenarios before and since, I was interested to find out her thoughts on how that all-important company dynamic works best. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, listening is obviously really important um, when you're working with a group of people, particularly on an ongoing basis for a, a live performance, which is going to keep going. Um, and so you, you do have to learn a lot about giving space to other people who maybe, especially the ones who maybe won't be saying much or, yeah. or can't say much. Uh, and, and very important to give space to yourself, which is something I wouldn't have done in the early days. I wouldn't have given myself enough space to kind of say, well, I think maybe mm -hmm. if we did it this way, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, now I do, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too, you know, and, um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of learning about listening and communication. In, in relation to live performance and a company, you know, you have to create, um, it's a mini society, you know. Yes. Um, you have to create a, a system. It's not even a fixed system, but you have to create a situation where that can move forward and produce the best work. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. So there's a lot, you learn a lot about life. You learn yeah. an awful lot of things in, in, the, in that process. 
in film it's quite different because you you might only have one scene with that person who's maybe very difficult or who's yeah. making your life hell. Yeah. Um, and I mean, um, without going into any detail, I had that situation recently and I really, really like, uh, it was horrible actually. I remember, and on the day I was kind of going, okay, well, I could address this, um, but it'll take time and we've only got so much time to get that shot. Yeah. So I'm just going to say nothing yeah. and hope that this situation is going to resolve itself. And, you know, I let the director step in and try and sort it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I could have helped even more, but probably only at the risk of yeah. alienating this other person, yeah. you know. So um, but it's, it's, so but, it's a very different thing because mm. you've got to just kind of accept and move on. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Whereas if you're in a, a company and yeah. you have that, you, thing, have you have to time. deal with it. Yeah. You have to and work you- it out. So far, we've been concentrating on her theatrical work, but already by this time, Alban had begun to expand her practice into work for the small and big screen. I've always been interested in film. Mm -hmm. I mean, that goes back to the Charlie Chaplin and to Westerns, basically. I've always loved Westerns. Um, And I think, you know, when people ask me who my icons were, as a child, I will, I will say, you know, the cowboys, yeah. <laughs> the cowboy movies, yeah. you know, they'd be, I, that, I would imagine I was walking through the Connemara like, yeah. like a cowboy, you know, um, that would be my, my fantasy. So, um, but there was very little, there was virtually no film happening in Ireland at that time, except maybe these big American movies that would, you know, shoot like Ryan's daughter or something like that. And, um, and then, when and and so it was theatre really all along, and then when the film did start happening in Ireland, I was so immersed in the theatre world, which is all consuming. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's all consuming. You you might be booked up for a year and a half, and so like films won't go near you because they know you're not available. And then and then you know there was a certain stage as well where theatre actors will be seen as theatre actors and not film actors. Yeah. That's changed a lot now. You know, there's a lot more malleability in between yeah. the two. Um, so really, I would say this, I did one or two small things here and there, but this this last wave, which has kind of taken off um, of screen work, started around 2010, yeah. 2011. Yeah. Yeah. And that's included quite big films and, and big productions. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I, I did a film called um, The Other Side of Sleep with Rebecca Daly. And simultaneously, um, I got, just around the same time, I got cast uh, in um, Paolo Sorrentino's This Must Be the Place. Yeah. And that was, that was really significant for me because, you know, Paolo is a European film director and I'm always fascinated by so many of the European film directors. I adored his earlier films, especially Il Divo. Um, and he's also just the loveliest man to work with. Okay. He loves actors. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, and his, he's got this brilliant relationship with his DOP and his first AD. And it's just, it was great. 
and, and when you say the brilliant relationship, does that kind of hark back to that feeling of, of the security of being in a group in the, in, in the theatre where there's real collective mm. will to make something work? Uh, totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you could feel that off, yeah. off, off, off them. And, and, and so you knew you were in really good hands, you know what I mean? You, that yeah. you were... You were working with people who knew what they were after yeah. and, you know, yeah. knew how to say it wasn't. I mean, I have been in situations where there'd be battles between, you know, the director and maybe yeah. ones you won't see. There's so many feel, lines you know, there that, yeah. that, that those things can break out. So a big crew. And, yeah. 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 Um, so that's kind of where it all started. Mm. And then, you know, it's kind of gone on from there. I've kept up, kept doing my theatre work, but screen work and then. I started to realize about a year ago that I, if I do one live, live thing a year, I'm okay. But I need that yeah. to sort of. It has to happen. To do something with my blood. Yeah, right. <laughs> to keep the blood yeah. nourished. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's such different. In the way that you've become accustomed to. And, yeah, and the way yeah. That you... And it's something to do with, you know, like there's, there's such different disciplines. And I think. What I what what I have from theater is something that I can really offer to film. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, if I, if I only did film, I think I would lose yeah, some of that. The offering. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that one of the things which Owen brings to film is that insatiable curiosity about how things work. And that voyage of discovery initiated through her theatrical work diverts seamlessly into her performances in front of the camera. Once again, there's science behind it. This is something that a, a coach told me, actually. Um, I went to a coach, Jerry Grinnell, because I, I felt very, um, I still feel really green in film. You know, mm-hmm. I still feel I haven't a clue how, how, how actors do it, you know, mm. on film, on camera. Um, and I've been able to let go of some of that, you know, wanting to, to you know, I've all, I, I, I realize my directorial eye really comes into play, you know, when I'm on film and I want to see the shot and yeah. then I want to change it based on what I've seen. Yeah. You know, I want to direct myself. Yes. And I've had to let go of that yeah. because you can't be doing that. Mm-hmm. It takes time. And also you just have to, you know, it's just, you know, you're going to obsess about it and you'll never be happy. So, so was there, would there have been a point where you might have gone, oh, can we do that again? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm often... Really? And sometimes, you know, I still, yeah. I still do that. I still do that, but um, much less. Yeah. I just accept that, that um, if it's good for the director, that it's yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's everybody. Like you'd realize mm. how many people are involved. Yeah, I might mm. have the best take ever, and everybody's yeah. happy with it. But yeah. the sound says there's a plane going over. <laughs> yes, you know, or yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. No, and you have to do the whole y- thing. Again. Yeah, um, but you know, they can piece it together. Mm-hmm. But um, Jerry did say one thing to me. I mean, he he kind of. And I would go and see him again and chat to him, I'd say. He's really great. Um, But we didn't do a session or anything. We just sat down and talked. And I said, you know, I don't really know. I don't understand. And he said, well, look, I've seen you you in a couple of films and you seem very grounded to me and all that kind of stuff. But I kind of said the thing about, you know, wanting to know the angles of the camera and all that kind of stuff. And he said, well, you know, if you think of yourself as the camera in a sense that, this is that that what what you are seeing and experiencing and yeah. the way you're moving is what the camera it is what the camera is doing. I can't quite get my head around it, but it makes some sort of sense that you 
you assume this relationship by becoming it. Mm, yeah. And there's something about that which seems right. Yeah. Where you you're not thinking about, you know, how do you relate? Say that's the cameras. Yeah. You know, you're not thinking yeah. about should it be like that, should it be like that? You're actually saying, I am that. And you know, yeah. you are seeing the world through it. Yeah. There's something in that which I think is really interesting. I've never been able to really do it, but the concept somehow seems right. Yeah. And it takes that ultimate yeah. power away from the thing that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And places it back into you. Yeah. yeah. Having gleaned lots of information about the rigorous dedication which Alwyn applies to every task in hand and gained so much understanding of the depth of her practice in the process, it's come to the point where we park up for a little while and get even deeper under the skin of one particular production. Like I said at the start, River Run, her own masterful adaptation of the voice of the river in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, is a benchmark production on so many different levels. The story of how it came together in 2013 is, like the production itself, truly fascinating. The way that happened, I mean, it's it's amazing how these things come to you, you know, and that's why I kind of go, got to be open, you know, to yeah. these things coming in. But um, we were, I was on tour with Terminus in the Sydney Theatre Company. Um, it was the Abbey production. And I had taken over for this particular tour. I hadn't played that role before. The three of us actually were new to it, Declan Conlon and Catherine Walker and myself. And we were asked, while during the run, we were asked if we would do readings from Ulysses for Bloomsday in the National Library, public library there in Sydney. Um, We were asked by the embassy to do it and they were doing this big thing. And I was kind of, I mean, I'm I'm a bit, I'm a bit mixed about Bloomsday, you know. Um, And I was kind of going, oh yeah, well, all right. I'll I'll do I'll do the Molly Bloom thing if if I can also do some of Finnegan's Wake and they got back and said oh yeah that's yeah happily you know that's a great idea so I read the the last page of Finnegan's Wake from home onwards that section mm. home my people are not their sort I'll be on there so far as I can you know that one when she's just heading into mm-hmm. into the ocean and. As I was, and so as I was doing it, like with all these people in this big room, this big space, I literally had the tongues of fire descended from above. <laughs> uh, this kind of, this, this, this real kind of inspiration feeling and, and looking around when I was saying some of those amazing words like, Ave Laval and Oravoles, they say, and all of those wonderful utterances that are in that section. Uh, and uh, I literally got to the end of it, away alone, alas, I loved along the, and I stepped down from the podium and I thought, that's my next piece. Yeah. <laughs> it's the voice of the river in Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. I had always been interested in Finnegan's Wake. I've never read the whole thing, but I've always been interested in the language of it, thinking, God, a fantastic language for performance because it bypasses the meaning Mm-hmm. part of the brain and mm-hmm. becomes all about sound and all mm-hmm. about kind of energy and yeah. all of that. Um, and, but I'd never really, I couldn't work out how to, you know, what would you do of it? And that was the key to the voice of the river, yeah. which then you can decide where she's speaking, you know, yeah. you know, like you can, she definitely speaks in the last 10 pages, but you can also find that she speaks 
you can decide she's speaking earlier on yeah. because it's your river, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's your, you're, you're assuming her, her vote. Mm-hmm. So um, the next day I, I got in touch with somebody uh, who had helped, you know, had helped at the thing that night who I knew was a, 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 a Joyce expert. And I said, look, will you help me extract uh, the voice of the river from Finnegan's Wake? And she was the one who kind of said, well, there are theories that she speaks all the way here. And, you know, and so basically she, she gave me sort of carte blanche. She gave me a few really lovely key things like the symbol of Anna Olivia, which is the, the triangle. Uh-huh. That's her symbol, uh, which is like the delta also. Yeah. You know, and all of those things. She gave me a few beautiful key things. And off I went on this journey. Um, I, I, just that idea of it happening in the moment and, mm. and it kind of mm. revealing itself is just... It makes so much sense when, as I did, was lucky enough to experience the full flow of mm. of what happened that, that with the, what you did with the yeah. words. So to get it to the stage of the first production, I mean, how much engagement with the text and, and how much kind of um, work did you have to put in to, to get it to, to yeah. a, a show level? A, a, a lot of work, but it was it was guided by some kind of um, something. Uh, I I know that I thought I'm going to have to speak to all these Joyce experts and get their help and maybe get someone to write it. And then gradually in my looking at it, I thought, no. And somebody else maybe even just said, look, no, you should just adapt it yourself. But I think maybe I just came to that decision. I think also when I was reading this great book called uh, Joyce's Book of the Dark, which is a book by um, an academic who's now dead. He was Californian, um, or he lived in, he taught in California. Uh, uh, John Bishop, his name is. And when I read that book, he he gave me the total carte blanche in terms of how you engage with the book, the freedom that, that you know, you have. And, in a, and that in a way, Joyce, Joyce's great, gift to us is that he's is that you anybody authors their own way through that book you author your way through yeah, the book yeah <clears throat> and that was the kind of thing that decided me and then i just started working backwards hmm. and and eventually i found what i felt was the beginning right. of the piece yeah. which was the very beginning of book 4 with uh-huh. the sandia sandia sandias uh-huh. and um i really don't know how i <laughs> I just kind of followed an instinct. Mm-hmm. I would start underlining mm-hmm. the, in pencil the, the 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 lines that I felt I wanted to say and leave out other ones, and you know, it went on like that. It might be a good time to give you some perspective on how River Run came across from the other side of the line. As Jane Howard put it in a review in The Guardian, River Run asks much of its audience, both concentration and the willingness to let the work wash over you. Still, for those who surrender, the production is one of breathless rewards. Barefoot on a sweep of salt spread across the stage, Alwyn Fuere whispers the words of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake into a microphone. She screams words, she sings words, she jumps and skips and plays with words. Her voice goes low and deep and her voice box fries as she draws out the vowels. It catches, repeating syllables again and again, a scratched record struggling to move on in song. 
Her voice rises with questions and falls with sadness. She captures James Joyce's characters, but always returns to the river. important moment in my yeah. in my life really um making that piece yeah uh, I, and i think it's probably the first piece that i'm really made alone up to a certain point mm-hmm. and then i worked very closely with alma kelleher yeah and then it was the two of us making uh, uh, it on the sound on the sound yeah, yeah, yeah and we yeah. worked very closely um because i did these few readings and then i mean the way that all yes that that's kind of interesting as well the way that all developed the sound dimension and everything was quite interesting because uh, I knew I wanted to work with a sound designer or a composer. And initially, actually, I was going to work with Michael Rouse. I don't know if you know him, Michael Rouse, the American composer, really great. But I really needed somebody who was going to be in the room. You know, I knew that mm-hmm. and that was how it worked and you know, that wasn't going to be possible. So, um, mean in the room with during the performance? As I'm, as yeah. I'm mm-hmm. developing yeah. it, yeah. you know, once yeah. I start making it, yeah. you need somebody in there to, you know, yeah. Not not somebody sending you stuff. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be in the room going, okay, well, maybe in this moment mm-hmm. to do this or mm-hmm. no. Yeah. There's not there's no substitute, mm-hmm. you know, no, for no, no, just no, no, collaborating no. together yeah. in the room. Yeah. Um but uh with the readings, with the couple of public readings I had, I remember thinking, so this was after I'd st- initially started working with Michael and then I was back in Ireland and then I I w- then I did those two readings in the pavilion. And and as I was kind of preparing them, I was going, oh, yeah, so I've divided this into sections and maybe between each section, maybe I have some, you know, it'd be great to have a composer, a musician in there, cello or something. And we couldn't get anybody. And actually, I think I was sitting here in this spot at the, at the time. I remember going, okay, so what would you do? And then I just started breathing in the in those transitions. So that became the yeah. transitions were just breath, mm-hmm. was just breathing. I said, because it's a sleeping body, you know, it's also maybe a dying body, but anyway, it's under, it's in the underworld and all of that stuff. And that became a kind of, those transitions became very key to the whole piece. Mm. And it went on from there. And then when I started working with Alma, that whole sound world was, was like, was like the internal sounds of, of, of a journey through the body as well, mm. you know, like the mm. river of blood and yeah. all those things. Um, so we, we had to, you know, we worked really, really closely together. But so it was the first thing, first time I had worked from initial idea to in that way, completely alone. Yeah. To then working with Alma, just the two of us alone and her writing down notes. She'd say, what's this section about? And I go, it's kind of like molecular excitation. <laughs> <laughs> like that's one of the she's written them all down all the yeah. phrases I came up with right. and then she yeah. she'd say them back to me two years later yeah, and yeah. said did I really say that <laughs> for a laugh. anyway but it was a really um I suppose it was a very affirming thing for me mm. artistically as yeah. well what? that I could 
that I could create something from yeah. scratch like that. Yeah. From a source material such as Finnegan's mm. Wake. Um, you know, and the, the, I guess the next big step would be to do something from source material, which is coming from yourself. But yeah. I don't know if I'll ever get to that. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm better working with something that's already there. Yeah. It's so heartening to hear Alwyn speak in terms of artistic affirmation with River Run, because as audience members exposed to something so dazzlingly brilliant, the insights gained can indeed be life-affirming. That's exactly what I was talking about when I mentioned earlier those light bulb moments which illuminate something previously hidden in front of our disbelieving eyes. That's where the power of art stretches into limitless territory. With River Run, Alwyn's thorough excavation of an exalted text reawakened senses and opened up worlds anew, thereby reinvigorating our own ability to understand Joyce's brilliance, while all the while taking our breath away. No mean feat and neither the first nor the last by her own hand. Given more time, there are countless other productions that Alwyn Fueri has graced with her presence, which we could dissect for the purposes of gaining insights into the art of making. But in light of the limitations, I thought it might be as good a point as any to enter the summing up phase of the conversation. Having starred in so many significant productions and comfortably straddled the line between the mainstream and experimental, as well as stretching the multidisciplinary approach to its limits, I was interested to find out if there was a thread of commonality in the work she gravitated towards. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have... I, I often say, and I think this is probably true, that I think the, that, that the kind of theatre I'm interested in is the theatre of disturbance, as I call it, where you you experience something, you, it doesn't have to have any kind of sense to it. Like, I'm not that interested in stories per se. I'm interested in the experience. And that I can see something or experience something and I mightn't even know what the hell it is, but I might wake up the next morning and go, I can't get it out of my mind. I mm-hmm. think that's a very powerful, mm-hmm. that's, that means for me that I've had some kind of powerful experience. Um, but I don't really have any, you know, I, I w- would never proclaim that it can't be this or it can't be that because I can see the most like really, really mainstream, funny lowest common denominator as one would say show and absolutely adore it yeah, you know so yeah, yeah. i don't have any um yeah i don't have any kind of a stance on it all but in terms of the kind of work that i feel i can offer something to yeah i think it is that darker tectonically tectonic shifting kind yeah. of thing you know i mean there's a few quotes that i wrote, I wrote down and I, I think he might have they're from you, but about engineering encounters with, with otherness. Uh, I yeah. love that idea. I mean, does it kind of feel like what, you know, what you've been given is these opportunities to do that with, with, you know, all the skills that you have and all the many opportunities that you have had, but there have, you are really sort of in the business of engineering those encounters or that happens by way of, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, I think for me, fundamentally what we do is uh, as artists within this world is, is, um, is open, open, open the door to a reality, which maybe is, 
either being denied to us or that we've never even imagined. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe, you know, because of all the different influences, I am very interested in those alternative realities, you know, and I don't mean in a sci-fi kind of way. I mean, in a real way, you know, that we, we live within a very, very constricted kind of confined reality in our everyday lives, uh, within this society, this world. Um, there are very, there are very kind of limiting rules as to what constitutes our reality, you know? Um, and, and I, and so I'm very interested in, in, in expanding all of that, you know, and expanding our understanding of reality. And, um, and there are probably, there are so many senses that we no longer really use either, you know, and I think performance, particularly live performance taps into some of those and maybe awakens some of those. Uh Um, so I'm very interested in all of that. And I think that that, that it's almost like, you know, we, we are, we are very, we, we have, whether it's us or whether it's, you know, the, the, the historically an awful lot of what we, uh, we, we, uh, an awful lot of those senses have become dormant, I think. Mm, Yeah. Of all the quotes we've heard today, there's so much to unpack in that last one. When I talked earlier about having core beliefs in the power of art crystallized, this is what I was referring to. There are so many forces at play in the modern world which dull our senses and contribute to this numbing effect that Alwyn is talking about. Our involuntary surrender to technological devices is just one example of how enslaved we have become at their command. The ways in which we can shock ourselves out of the spiritual paralysis are becoming fewer and further between. But surrendering to the power of life performance remains one of the most potent. And when it comes to the measure of that potency, it's performers like Alwyn Fuere who we count on to keep reinventing the formula and stretching the limits of what's possible. That reliance is all too often a taken-for-granted thing. But if this series is about anything, it's a rallying cry to refresh the screen, open our eyes and give respect where it's due. In closing, I asked Alwyn about her perspective on what it is that happens in those transcendent moments of pure, unadulterated feeling. When the work is really happening, yeah. I'm talking about in the moment, you know, when, when you, when, or even sometimes, you know, when you're preparing your, and you're rehearsing, there's a certain stage in rehearsals, I think, when you know it's going to, it's taken over. Yeah. It's an it. Yeah. The it. Whatever the it is. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of, it's just as though we have created the circumstance. That's the job is to create the circumstance for something else to come through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always feel that. That's it. That that's, I say it's, it is it. <laughs> it's an it. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is. And, um, and there's a great, you know, it's, 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 it's a great feeling when you, when you see it happening. And it doesn't happen every night when you're performing or anything like that. But it, it's the more, it's the more, those are the moments where you go, ah, uh, yeah, something is coming through now. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with me or nothing to do with, with anything really um, that, that, that we're presenting. But 
it's there's something really essential coming through here. So I suppose I'm talking about very basic principles of ritual or whatever it is. When that thing happens, you know you're doing your job. Mm. That that's how I would think of it. Mm-hmm. So you are just as a vessel or as a messenger, you are just going, okay, well, um, you know, I've, I've got everything together here now. And, um, and I mean, I'm not a religious person or anything, but I do believe in these forces, whatever they are. Um, and they may be completely scientifically explainable, you know, <laughs> I don't know what it is, <laughs> but, um, and this is the energy of some kind of communication coming from whatever it is. Yeah. So I'm a real believer in that and that and when and that we all know when it happens as well. Well, I was just going to say that like as a consumer and as a as a a keen audience member I think it's the felt thing that we're looking for on, on the other side and 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 once mm-hmm. it's felt yeah that's it. And and I mean you feel it so often in music mm. and live music. Mm. Like you won't necessarily feel it off the record, the record of it, or anything like that, or the CD of it, or the recording of it. But yeah. there's something, and I, I often would say, the gloaming. There's a certain point, whenever the gloaming played together. Oh yes. A certain point the, in the night, and it's usually when Martin's off on one. Yeah. That you go. Here we go. <laughs> you know, and and it all happens. So true. So it's true. It's so strange. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I've been in few, that's why I think music is the highest art form because it transcends all languages and uh, it, it nearly, it kind of operates on that principle that mm-hmm. it's just, it's conjuring it. <laughs> <laughs> Given the peerless standard of the work and her singular commitment to the evolution of her craft, it was a real privilege to get such a candid inside guide to how the whole process works from a maker of the calibre of Alwyn Fuere. We're very grateful to her, not just for taking the time on our behalf, but for spending it so generously with us. We came expecting food for thought, and we were treated to a feast. So all that's left for me to say at this point are some closing words of praise. Thanks to all the other makers and conjurers of it we've sat down with over the course of the six episodes. From Eamon Doyle to Isabel Nolan, Liz Roach, Brian Cross, Denise Chyla and Michael Keegan Dolan. Thanks too to Miranda Driscoll and Solace Nua in Washington DC for commissioning the series. And most of all, to my editor and producer Ian Cudmore for guiding me every step of the way. Alton O'Brien composed the series' music and additional sounds on this episode were from the original score for River Run by Alma Kelleher. So that brings this chapter in our We Are The Makers investigations to a close in this format. But we hope to pick up where we left off at some point somewhere in the future. Until then, in the makers and the dreamers of the dream, keep on believing. So long now. was written and presented by Donald Deneen, edited and produced by Ian Cudmore with original music by Ulton O'Brien. 
this series was commissioned by Silas Newer in Washington, D.C. Makers. Makers. Makers.